Welcome to our newest Hearts Unite the Globe hug patrons. Annie Olchek, we sincerely appreciate your support. Thank you for joining our community and making a difference through Patreon. Judy Miller, thank you for being our first Buzzsprout supporter for Bereave But Still Me. Buzzsprout started a new program where you can actually support the podcast of your choice. There are so many ways you can support Hug. All you have to do is visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.com, to see how you too can help empower, educate, and enrich the lives of individuals in the CHD and bereaved communities. Thank you all for your continued support. Not knowing what was going to happen or how it was going to feel, or later maybe knowing what was going to happen and how it was going to feel, made her very, very upset. She hated that. It's the one thing I know she hated. Of everything in her life and all that was wrong, that she really couldn't deal with. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna. I'm Frank Jaworski and your guest host. My wife, Anna, is usually the host of this program, but for Heart Month, I offer to do a special program on Sundays. This is the third of four Heart Dad Sundays. I have a very special guest I'll be talking with today. Today's show is entitled Beyond CHDs, Dealing with Autism and Epilepsy. Michael is the father of three children. 27-year-old Idan, 25-year-old Sapir, and forever 15-year-old Liel. Michael and Leora have been married for 34 years. Michael made Aliyah to Jerusalem after college. Michael was a former filmmaker, high school teacher, adjunct professor of television and radio production, and he now works in security. For almost six years, Michael has been working with my wife, Anna, as the host of a bereavement podcast, now entitled bereaved but still me i've had the pleasure of meeting michael in person twice once in budapest and then again in his hometown of jerusalem it is with great pleasure that i now have a chance to talk with michael about his daughter leo welcome to heart dad sunday michael Levin. thank you frank it is an absolute joy to be back here great good to talk to you too michael michael you and i are both veteran dads can you tell me about Liel? and when her heart defect was diagnosed. Yeah, Liel was born a little bit early, and she was a cesarean, so she was held on for an extra day or two at the hospital. And on routine checkout at day three, the pediatrician heard something that he didn't like, which is pretty good because not all pediatricians are attuned to picking that sort of thing up. So we got sent over to pediatric cardiology where we spent several hours not knowing anything while doctors we had never met were working, I don't know, I guess they were doing ultrasounds and all kinds of things and trying to figure out what was going on with Liel. And we were pretty much in the dark for a few hours. It turned out later that day that she had double outlet right ventricle and that she was getting too much blood towards the lungs. And so they were immediately talking about doing a pulmonary artery banding, which happened two weeks later. And we were getting our overnight PhD in pediatric cardiology and learning what everything meant. And they sent us home to wait and see what was going on. And we had to go back in every week for checkups until they did the banding and things slowly started to get better and figure itself out. The main issue for her as an infant was that she wasn't eating very much and she was working very, very hard to eat just a little bit of food and she was sweating, which was always the question of heart failure. And as veteran parents, we were suddenly back to page one, learning everything from the beginning. 
Did she have any surgeries inside from the pulmonary artery banding? Yeah, at age two, she had the Rostelli. What happened was a double outlet right ventricle is a little bit complicated, but basically what it is is the aorta is on the wrong side of the heart. She also had transposition, but it didn't matter because they were both on the same side of the heart. So the question is, how does blood get out to the rest of the body, and how do you survive like that? And the answer is that nature sometimes will compensate one defect with another one that will try to make things work better. So she had a VSD, which is a hole in the wall, and the blood would flow over to the wrong side of the heart and then find its way out through the aorta. It was very complicated, but it worked for a little while. They knew they were going to have to do something about that. And at age two, they did the Rostelli procedure where they put a Gore-Tex patch across the VSD. So the blood is now led directly to the aorta, and you basically have a four-chamber properly functioning heart. Except, there's always except, the VSD, as it's wont to do, began to close down over those two years. And in order to make it big enough for the patch to work, they were going to have to actually widen it. They knew pretty much going in what that meant was that they were going to scrape away the part where the natural pacemaker of the heart was, because it's not something you can actually see. And that's always one of the dangers of this procedure. And so what we did essentially, we traded up from DORV to heart block, 100% heart block. And that meant she would need a pacemaker forever, which she had. And pretty much after that day, her heart was okay and became, I think, the lesser of our issues with her, which is kind of interesting because we know all about the interesting work that was done there. And the heart's very, very small at that age. And we know everything that was done. And yet we began to worry about other things. Okay. I know that we all developed some problems after the Rastelli. Can you tell us what happened to her heart? So to answer your question, then everything as far as the heart was concerned was pretty much set by then. Good. And she had a pacemaker replaced, you said, at the age of 12? At age 12, they had the pacemaker replaced, which is about average. It was 10 years since the first one went in. And yeah, everything seemed to be okay. As far as the heart, the only thing that really bothered us, actually, was there was one scary bit, and that's the pacemaker itself. The doctor said, you can not worry about pretty much anything. You can go in and out of airports. You can go in and out of doors. All of that's fine. It's protected. The one thing you don't really want to be around is cell phones because a cell phone could accidentally reprogram the pacemaker incorrectly, and then you'd have a problem. So we immediately developed a fear of cell phones. Now, let me explain. In the state of Israel, everybody had cell phones before anybody else knew what they were pretty much anywhere in the world. I don't know why. It just broke that way. We like gadgets. and. If you walk through a bus and everybody's sitting and you have a girl who's maybe five years old, her heart is at the same level as people who have phones maybe on their sides. And I had this terrible phobia of something happening to the pacemaker, a terrible phobia of cell phones. And it was years before I got over that. That is pretty terrifying because they're so commonly found. Holy cow. Well, now they're found everywhere. But in those days, even in America, people didn't have as many per capita as we have here. It was terribly scary, and they get better over time. They're more protected now, and they're less likely to do damage now. 20 years ago, they were much more of a danger. Scared the hell out of me, because everywhere you go, somebody's on a cell phone somewhere, and now they're even more ubiquitous because they've got games on them. In those days, it was just a phone. Sure. That is terrifying. So I know that Liel was your youngest child. Yeah. Considering the severity of her heart defect, did you ever have Idan or Sapir tested? It's funny you should ask that. It's not the sort of thing that was top on our minds. I asked a doctor if there was anything to worry about. He said, no, these things just happen and you shouldn't really worry about it. 
But one day when Idan was around five, he was in nursery school. And I don't know exactly what happened. I think he choked on a cookie or something. But the nursery school teacher got really wildly upset. He threw up and something black came out because he'd just been eating Oreo cookies. And so she hit the button and the ambulance came and everybody was up in arms and what's going on. Turns out there was absolutely nothing wrong with him. But we did go through the motions of checking his heart out. It was never an issue with Sapir. She's always been fine. It sounds like between the scare with Idan and the scare with the cell phones, you guys were on high alert all the time. 24-7. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, all the time. Yeah. Now, we know that we all had a complex heart. What was your biggest concern about her heart as she grew older? Our biggest concern about her heart wasn't all that much. We knew that everything was pretty much okay. And that's the interesting thing because the only thing to worry about, you know, what if the battery goes? What if something goes wrong with the pacemaker? Because that was the only thing that was actually mechanical. Everything else was fine. The heart was theoretically a four-chamber working heart now. There are different kinds of pacemakers. There are some that just monitor, and when you need it, they give you a zap. And there are others without which you can't live. And this is one of those that beat 24-7. Without the pacemaker, she didn't have enough power to beat her heart at a fast enough rate to survive. So the only thing that was really kind of scary if you thought about it is what happens if something goes wrong with the pacemaker. You're totally dependent on technology. But after five or six years, you get over that because you pick her up, you put her to bed, she goes to sleep, she gets up in the morning, everything seems to be working. And in that sense, really her heart was taken care of. And that is one of the great success stories of CHD is that something so complicated can really be taken care of. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The opinions expressed in the podcast are not those of Hearts Unite the Globe, but of the hosts and guests, and are intended to spark discussion about issues pertaining to congenital heart disease or bereavement. Anna Jaworski has written several books to empower the congenital heart defect, or CHD, community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website, www.babyheartspress.com. Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, The Heart of a Father, and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, a handbook for parents, will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more. So, Michael, before the break, we learned a little bit about Liel's heart condition. But in this segment, let's talk about the conditions that actually caused you even more concern as she grew older. When was Liel diagnosed with autism? Well, like everybody else, autism usually shows itself at around three or four years old. Parents who already have an autistic child can sometimes see it much, much younger. But we didn't have any reason to think anything was wrong. She was beginning to babble. She was beginning to say things. And then suddenly, she sort of backtracked a little bit, stopped talking, was a little less responsive. I thought she might be deaf. In fact, she was deaf on one side, but that's a whole other issue. The autism really got stronger after the surgery. And of course, there was always the question, she was on and off the heart-lung machine three times while they were testing the Rostelli. Was there maybe a loss of oxygen? Maybe it's not really autism. Maybe it's something else. Turns out it is autism. But the question arose, and of course, I asked the doctor, and in typical doctor fashion, he said, well, do you prefer the alternative? So you say no, and you keep going, right? You take what you got. It started to show at about three or four. We were able to get her into a special school. Jerusalem has a system where they have, they call it a school 
for kids on the autism spectrum, but what it really is is it's a series of classrooms spread around the city in regular schools. So you get mainstreamed as much as you can. There isn't one building where all the kids are sort of shuffled away together in some other place. And it was very, very good. It was very, very positive. And she was doing very, very well there. But as she got older, it became clear that we needed to do something to get our lives back and to be able to give our other children what we could. And she was getting bigger and not progressing a whole lot. And by the time she was 13, we found a place about two hours north of here near Haifa where she could live and go to school and be surrounded by the kind of 24-hour help that we could no longer provide for her. And that was a very, very positive thing. And I know this because we brought her home every second weekend, and I think the first or second time we brought her home, she was having lunch with us on a Saturday afternoon, and she asked us, when am I going home? Which meant the other place. So that was kind of nice, that she felt right at home right away. She moved right into it, and she loved it there. And I got to say, for two and a half years, she had a great time. We loved to go up and visit her. We loved to bring her back home, and everything was great. I mean, we were finding a way that it could work. In Israel, the system is very well built and structured so that until the age of 18, you pay a deductible that you can afford. And then by the time she's 18, you are still her parents and you are still in control, but the state takes over the cost of her education. Of all my children, by the time she was 13, she was the only one who was really set for life in the sense that we knew that she would always be taken care of. High school for kids with autism goes until age 21, and after that, they would find her a job and that she would always have a place to live. Yeah. You know, yeah, well, that is very comforting. A lot of parents have problems with that. I know we spoke to one of the fathers last week who told mm-hmm. us how he and his wife had made plans for what happened after they could no longer take care of their son. So it's good they have that system. Well, it's the thing you fear, right? We did a program yeah. on my show. We did a program about that early, early on. We had a writer who has a son with Down syndrome, and she's spending now all of her life preparing for him to live after her. And That decision for us was taken off the table because we knew that she could stay there forever. She was with a bunch of people her own age now, and as they aged up, she would age up, and they would stay there. So it was kind of like a family, and it was really very nice. We used to tell her how lucky she was. She was the only one in the family who had two homes. She always had a home with us, and she always had a place to live up there, and she liked it. So what could be wrong with that? It was great. Yeah. Absolutely. So what was the name of the school she went to? It was called Yuvalim. Don't ask me to translate it because at the moment I don't think I can. But it was on a kibbutz and it was very, very lovely. And they were basically three ground level apartments. And now they've expanded. It's much bigger now. But there were three apartments, each with seven kids in them. And I don't know, maybe two or three full-time staff people around them during the day. They would be taken to school. Some of them went to school on the premises. Liel didn't, but she was going to. And uh, they would come back from school and everything was taken care of. They gave them food. They gave them clothing. They would take them out. They would go shopping. They'd get to know their area. They were full living members of the community in which they were placed. And they had a great time and they had purpose, you know, something that we could no longer give to Liel because we have to work and we have to be with our other children. But they really took care. It was great. That's great. And I'm delighted that she had that and that you had that there also for your own comfort. It's a good thing. I remember we told Sapir, Sapir must have been 11. We said, Liel's going to be living outside the house now. And her first question was, are you giving her away? No. She's going to live in a place that's better for her. We have full access to her. And by the way, just before the end, they built a place just like that 
literally 10 minutes away from where we live, and we were going to move her back to Jerusalem. And the hardest thing I was going to have to explain to her was, why all the way back to Jerusalem, but not through the front door? And she was going to literally live 10 minutes from here. I could see her every day. I was already planning in my mind, Tuesday's pizza for everybody, that kind of thing. Things changed. We'll get to that, but things changed. Yeah. And we all aged. She developed another condition that commonly occurs in the autistic community. Can you tell us more about that? Oh, yes, I can. At about age 13, just before moving up north, she had a seizure and we went to the hospital and we did an EEG and we checked out her brain and they said there's no evidence of anything being wrong. Many times it's just a one-off and you're fine. And with that, we sent her to live in the north and about a half a year later, she started having more seizures and it was determined that she had epilepsy. Everybody laughed. You could have pushed me over with a feather, but everybody laughed. They said, that's the easy one. Every second kid up here has epilepsy. It's all about medication and balance and we know how to deal with it. You shouldn't worry. We got this one. They were much more afraid of her heart, but they were certainly not afraid of epilepsy. That was their bailiwick. They knew what to do. It's great when the caregivers have that kind of confidence. It's got to be reassuring to you. So, Michael, once she was on medication, did she have less seizures? Yeah, it took a little while to balance her. But yeah, once she was on medication, things were good. And most seizures only lasted for maybe 30 seconds or less. And she also was gifted enough to see them coming. So she could shout out and put her head down and not fall. So she was pretty good at that. At the school, they got used to it. At the home where she was living, they knew exactly how to deal with it. And yeah, it takes a while to get balanced. But once you're balanced, you can generally go on forever. And most people go on and just have a great life after that. Yeah. It sounds like in that sense, procedures were typical. I worked in the emergency department and EMS before that. And mm-hmm. most people who have a seizure disorder are familiar with the aura that comes beforehand. It can be anything yeah. from a smell that doesn't have any identifiable cause, always the same smell or a certain feeling or a sense of sound or something. And then immediately after that, they go to the seizures and they become used to that. And so they can say, hey, I'm going to have a seizure. I think that she probably did do that because I think she knew they were coming and she would shout out and go down. But I have to tell you, she was a happy girl and she loved and laughed at everything, but she really hated this. She really, really hated it because this is a girl who is autistic, so she doesn't communicate all that well in the first place and losing total control, even for half a minute of her body, right? Not knowing what was going to happen or how it was going to feel or later maybe knowing what was going to happen and how it was going to feel made her very, very upset. She hated that. It's the one thing I know she hated of everything in her life and all that was wrong that she really couldn't deal with. Heart to Heart with Anna is a presentation of Hearts Unite the Globe and is part of the Hug Podcast Network. Hearts Unite the Globe is a nonprofit organization devoted to providing resources to the congenital heart defect community to uplift, empower, and enrich the lives of our community members. If you would like access to free resources pertaining to the CHD community, please visit our website at www.congenitalheartdefects.com for information about CHD, the hospitals that treat children with CHD, summer camps for CHD survivors, and much, much more. Home Tonight Forever by the Baby Blue Sound Collective. 
I think what I love so much about this CD is that some of the songs were inspired by the patients. Many listeners will understand many of the different songs and what they've been inspired by. Our new album will be available on iTunes, Amazon.com, Spotify. I love the fact that the proceeds from this CD are actually going to help those with congenital heart defects. Enjoy the music. Home tonight forever. So, Michael, before the break, we were talking about Leo's autism, how she developed epilepsy. I know one day you got a phone call that no parent ever wants to receive. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I can. That was a horrible, horrible moment. I was working the overnight shift, and I got a phone call. I think it was around 6 in the morning, a little bit before 6, and the name on it was the woman who runs the home. I'm thinking, this can't be good. And I opened the phone carefully, and she was crying and said, you've got to get up here. Something's wrong. We don't know exactly what, but she's had a seizure and it's a really bad one. Okay. Later, we found out a little more detail. They were doing their regular wake-up drills in the morning where they would shower a kid, look in on the L, and shower a kid, and look in on the L, and shower a kid, and oh, the L was green. So that wasn't good. And I think what was happening here, when your child develops epilepsy, they don't tell you about this thing. It's called SUDEP. Sudden Unexpected Death in Epilepsy, where for no apparent reason, you just go. There may be good reason not to tell people about it, because if I had known about it, I would have been a wreck driving her two hours up and two hours back every second weekend with her in the backseat of the car. It's joyful enough when an autistic kid in the backseat of the car, she could have tried and open the door on the highway. But this really would have made me nuts. Yeah. That's apparently what was happening that morning. My boss let me out a little bit early. I got home. I woke up Neora, and then I called one of my best friends. I said, listen, I don't think I should be driving. We have to get up north, and we got to get there now, and it's a two-hour drive, and it's Friday. How do you feel? And he said, let's go. And we got in the car, and we went. We got up there about a quarter to 12. That was a really tough decision, but a smart decision. Oh, not to drive? No, I knew that this was not going to go well. So we got there at around quarter to 12, and the doctor was going off duty at 12. And he took us aside and he said, listen, you've got two options. You've got bad and really bad. And really bad is that she might wake up. Because he was concerned about cerebral injury. It was untold. He said, we don't even have a clue how bad it is. Okay. There's just a lot of massive damage to the brain. If she wakes up, she will never smile. She will never get up. She will never talk. She'll be connected to tubes and you'll feed her for the rest of her life and she could live a long time. You don't want that. She doesn't want that. Nobody wants that. That's really bad. So they talk about stages of grief. I jumped right over all of them, and I went straight into acceptance, which I think was a good thing in the end. And I understood what was happening. And he explained to me that we were watching her brain activity. The definition of death now is brain death. And so they said, we're watching for that, and brain activity is going down. All the other activities are going down. She's shutting down. But we have to keep her here, and we have to do what's called brain resuscitation. And if and when it doesn't work, then we'll talk further. We were there, I think it was Monday when we finally lost her, but we went up there on a Friday, and they said, where are your kids? And I said, well, nothing happens overnight in the heart world. The kids are with their grandparents, and they'll... They said, no, 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 get the kids up here. I said, but it's, it's Friday afternoon, it's late. Get the kids up here. So we got somebody to pick up the kids who had just settled in with their grandparents and we brought the kids back up and had to start explaining to them what was going on and we had to understand ourselves what was going on. Michael, do you think that because of your experience for many years with 
various challenges and scares with Liel that you might have worked through some of the stages of grief earlier and you were ready for this kind of thing in case it happened. I've never thought of it like that, but you're probably right. We didn't have that kind of scare ever before. We had to do three heart surgeries, but I was never afraid going into heart surgery that it wasn't going to work. And I was never faced with the possibility that today's the last day. It just didn't occur to me. Now, that's not entirely true because later we'll talk about other things. And I'll say that up until then, we had made decisions concerning life and death. And yet they were much more day-to-day feeling. They weren't really final as this really felt final. The doctor, I think, really put me into it. He put me right where I needed to be. And I think that's why this time it felt different. It sounds like he was a neurologist. As a neurologist, they have faced these kind of things all the time. And so he addressed you directly and it worked the way it's supposed to work. He communicated with you. Well, he was the head of the pediatric ICU. He was not a neurologist, but there was a neurologist on board. And he absolutely understood what was going on. And he was very, very blunt. And I respect him for that. I think he probably is one of the best doctors I've ever met because he knew how to talk to us to to get us where we needed to be for her. Yeah. So, Michael, I know you did an entire show with Anna about organ donation. Mm -hmm. We can put the link to that show in our show notes, and we will. Can you tell me if your experience with Liel has changed any of your other family members' attitudes or feelings about organ donation? Yeah, it has, actually. At the time we made the decision, I said, this is going to be a group decision. We're going to do this by consensus. If anybody says no, we're not going to do it. And everybody said yes, but I sensed that Sapir wasn't completely happy with this. And later she told me that she went along with it because she didn't want to be the one person to disagree with it. Luckily for her and luckily for us, a couple of years after she died, we were in touch with the Jerusalem transplant coordinator. Now that Sapir was older, he explained what is brain death, what it means, and why we wait for brain death in order to be able to use the organs. And then she came around and said, well, I didn't know that then. I'm glad I know it now. And now if you ask me, I would support it fully. And through all of that, the transplant coordinator asked me if I wouldn't mind helping him out speaking to groups. And so I've started to do that a little bit. I've spoken to doctors. I've spoken to high school students. I've spoken to nursing students. And I've become somewhat of an advocate for transplants in a country where the numbers now are getting better over time, but people are more reticent to transplant here for whatever reasons. Yeah. It's fascinating. I've read a lot about transplant morality and mentality in various countries. Some countries, it's almost unheard of. Well, it's funny you say that because there are two things here on that. Religiously, now there's no official block on transplanting. People and the rabbis who make these decisions have become more educated on the subject. Now, Judaism doesn't have a central authority or a central rabbi. We don't have a pope. So it's hard to make a decision that's uniformly accepted, and you actually can't. Michael, yeah. we've talked in the past about post-traumatic growth, how a person after a trauma can have meaningful, important growth in their life and their heart. Yep. How has your bereavement podcast contributed to your post-traumatic growth? That's a complicated question, but it's a good one. A number of things, and it relates, in fact, to why we transplanted. There are three good reasons to do it. One is that you can save a life. One is that you are immediately 
memorializing somebody in a meaningful way. And the third is any part of her that could still be walking around should be. And I've become a big advocate for that. So that's one big change. And part of that is through the program because we talk about it a lot. We've done a number of programs on transplantation and it's really important to me. The other thing is that we believe in Bereave But Still Me, in the Hearts Unite the Globe Network, we believe that grief shared is grief lightened. And the more we talk about it with people who are willing to listen to us, the more we can feel a lifting. You can never get rid of grief, and grief is important. It does, in some sense, helps define who we are. Our grief is who we've become. But we're still the people we were, and we still have the same thoughts and values that we had before, but things get heightened. I remember talking to the board at Hearts Unite the Globe, who gratefully and thankfully pay for this program to go out. I remember telling them, if we help only one person, then we've done our job just by talking and sharing stories. If one person comes out feeling better from that, we've done our job. Well, and I think that's an important principle. Em and I feel the same way, that you may wind up helping many people, but the important thing is you help somebody. Well, your effort counts, and yeah. what you bring to the people is invaluable. Not just well, transplantation, but just the support of people that know what it yeah. feels like. Yeah. We have a saying in Judaism that somebody who saves a life, it's as if he saved the whole world. Now, I don't pretend to be saving anybody's life here, but if we help somebody, we've helped the whole world because that person's grief, that person's loss is their whole world. And if we can do that multiple times, how many worlds are we saving? How many worlds are we changing? How many lives are we making just a little bit better if we can help? And one would hope that there's a chain effect on that also, that if you help somebody else, then they can carry that on and help another person. And there'll be ripples that spread out from whatever you do. So it's much bigger than you'll ever know. That's true. And I hope it does go beyond us. We've recently entered China. Somebody in China is listening to us. That's great. I don't know who you are, but I hope you're doing well. Glad to hear it. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us about your daughter and how her story continues to help the congenital heart defect community. Thank you very much for having me. It's always nice to visit on Heart to Heart with Anna. If we've been able to help today just one person, then we've done our job. That's all for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this special episode of Heart to Heart with Anna, please leave a review of the podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to the podcast. And remember, my friends, you are not alone. Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you have become inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart community. Heart to Heart with Anna with your host, Anna Jaworski, can be heard at any time, wherever you get your podcasts. A new episode is released every Tuesday from noon Eastern time.